The Oliver Stone Podcast, episode 13. You like that? Let's do it. Did you like that? I did. All right, Very Alex. Official. Yeah, it's official <laughs> now. We're live. Indeed. Well, Alex, thank you for coming to do the show. Thank uh, you for having me. I'm so happy I, to be here. I guess we can say the first time we did it, it was unsuccessful because the camera turned off. Shit uh, happens. Mid, mid, yeah, it happens. <laughs> but we're back, and we're gonna do it again. It's gonna be fantastic. So hopefully um, you don't um, you don't walk away with the assessment that I'm crazy because I give a whole different story about my life and yeah, where I'm at. Which so is interesting. So yeah. this will be good for me to kind of be consistent with the narrative. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. So let's start off with um, and uh, who you are and what you do for a living. Well, again, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Alex Van Meckel. I am a senior public relations practitioner slash senior project manager type originally born and raised in fort myers florida over on the west coast Mm -hmm. of florida it's about two hours away from miami for those that aren't geographically inclined and um that's where i grew up that's my the genesis of my story and kind of what inspired so many things that i'm working on today and what i later pursued um after college Okay, um, on the West Coast, where where where'd you say it was again? Fort Myers. Fort Myers, so right? Again, um, it's just south of Sarasota, north of Naples, Bonita Springs. Um, tragically, it's where Hurricane Ian did the most damage. For those that <laughs> remember that, a little more recently. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, it kind of obliterated Fort Myers Beach and Sanibel, but. Um, I'm proud of my community um, and where I'm from. You know, it's got a quaint town feel with a lot of growth and progression. And and interestingly enough, a lot of uh, craft-like experiences from breweries popping up to pizza shops. Like now? Yeah, it's not the Fort Myers I grew up with. So the fact that it's come so far in the the few years that I've been away, um, it's kind of exciting. Yeah, that's great. Um, what school did you go when you were over there? Did you graduate high school there or did you move around? I did. So I hopped around. Well, I went, that makes me sound like a nomad. <laughs> I went from one charter school, um, not a fan, <laughs> to public school. I was a fan. And the last school I went to was Riverdale High School. Yeah. Nice. Is that like the show? <laughs> like the show. Wow. And in fact, um, interestingly enough, one of the things that I was, you know, uh, fascinated by that had happened in part at Riverdale was what's called the Lords of Chaos. Um, it was a teen militia group, like pre-Columbine, um, pre-any bombing of public significance. Uh, there was a teen militia group based out of Riverdale High School, the one that I went to in Fort Myers, what? that was known and notorious and actually famous, infamous, in fact, for all the things they were doing around Fort Myers, causing arson and ultimately resulting in some them killing somebody that worked at the high school. So that's wow. a story that not a lot of people have heard about in quite some time. It's not it's not a a good thing for the, the reputation of the community, but it's definitely I mean Dateline NBC did a whole segment on it some time ago, but that's the high school that I went to. <laughs> it's wow. not the one that I was at during those times. It's an international baccalaureate program school. Gotcha. Or was. I haven't been back. So, gotcha. yeah. 
that's my humble beginning. And you stayed in college for Florida, in Florida, or did you go somewhere else for college? I did. So I just wanted to get away from my hometown. I wanted to kind of spread my wings, but I didn't want to go too far. So the first school I looked at was FIU, Go mm -hmm. Panthers. Um, but I didn't go there, <laughs> just to be clear. So Go Panthers. <laughs> go Panthers, go but, you know, <laughs> go, no go. Um, but I actually didn't end up going there. I went to FAU. Florida Atlantic University out of Boca Raton. Yeah. Go Owls. That's Go where Owls I graduated <laughs> from four years in, 20, 2008 to 12. Um, and thereafter, I, you know, I got my degree in film and media. I worked in the film industry here in Miami. I went to and worked at the Miami International Film Festival. I was an extra. I did some stunt work when they were bro, filming a lot. Bro, you can't skip all these things, man. Like you're saying some interesting no, 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 stuff no, no, here, no. bro. This, but this stunt is man, just, you were a stunt man. This is like this is just like the padding for for the larger <laughs> package to come to be unveiled. But yeah, um, interestingly enough, the one time I served as a stunt guy <laughs> was on the show. The Finder, which was a Fox or FX, no, I think it was Fox show with Jeff Stoltz and Michael Clark Duncan, who had passed away not yeah, long after, not long after I had actually met him in the trailer while I was being made up to look like one of the uh, day players that they had that day. Okay. So, or previous to me serving as a stunt guy. So it was interesting. I mean, it wasn't crazy. I didn't like do a, a you know, a flip or anything, but <laughs> I did you? drive, I did drive, no, I cannot. <laughs> I did drive a car across the MacArthur Causeway a couple times, like back and forth with a helicopter going over me. And then there were a few other pickup shots nice. that, I, that I served. Look at you. Next yeah. stop, Miami Vice, baby. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> shout out to Jeff Stoltz, who said I looked better. I was more attractive than the day player they had. <laughs> so as uh, shy and nerve-wracking as that was to be next to, you know, a working actor telling me I looked better than the guy that got hired. Wow. You know, it was flattering, but that was the beginning to, uh, I don't want to say a lengthy pursuit in entertainment. It didn't last too long once I went out to Hollywood, California, not Florida. But it was a great introduction to the industry. Mm -hmm. It was in the beautiful backyard of Miami-Dade County. Um, and it wasn't just that. I was in Step Up 3. Uh, burn as a notice. dancer? No, not as a dancer. <laughs> as an onlooker <laughs> to the dancers that were doing the backflips. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. So Ocean Drive has a special place in my heart because I've seen it transform twice. For the opening segment, it was like a three-day shoot for five minutes in the film, which was a huge like opening dance routine where they were like tagging cars and doing all this, mm -hmm. these backflips from the tops of the deco boutique hotels. And then the other show that made that whole strip have a whole transformation was, uh, I think it was called magic city and it was on stars and it was about the gangster era. So they had quite literally transformed ocean drive to like the forties and fifties with I the period, period cars, they, nice. they covered all the signs that were like present day. They had like chessboard players in Lummis Park um, that further cemented my passion and love mm -hmm. for entertainment, let alone filmmaking and that kind of creative space. Gotcha. So let's go back a bit. So you finished school it, for cheers, film. by the way. Yeah, cheers. Much needed. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. There's nothing like a cold beer, bro. Yeah, we won't say the brand because it's not sponsoring the segment. But oh, it could it's if it wanted one. to. It's the only light <laughs> beer I really like. For real? That's why we're, that's the only one we had in the fridge. There you go. That's Perfect. interesting. 
So let's backtrack a bit to after school. How did you get into the field? Does the school kind of hook you up with getting jobs inside the the production industry, or is that something <laughs> you have to do? <laughs> for anyone who's seeking an internship that's waiting for that moment, Godspeed. No, I pursued all of that myself. Okay. So it started with a I worked as an intern for a film producer, and I like fought with my school to get credit for that opportunity. Come to think of it, I don't remember if I actually got it or not, but it was a legitimate internship with a legitimate film producer. He actually did a film that I did a cover uh, sheet on when I used to read scripts for him. Um, I was there for like one season, like from an August to November kind of situation. And uh, that film was with Ava Mendez, and it was called can't remember but it was like a 13 going on 30 um kind of coming of age story mm -hmm. anyways i remember reading that script and being really moved by just how like how kind of edgy it was and emotional and and contemporary the film ended up being a version of that it wasn't exactly what i read to the extent of me crying while reading it really um but it was Damn. still an interesting arc had even though I had moved on from that internship, I vividly remember like really strongly recommending it for consideration. Mm -hmm. I left, and then a few years later, they make the movie. They make the movie, um, and Ava Mendes is attached to it. So even just from like a producing perspective, that was kind of a neat um, kind of sideline perspective of like the industry works even mm -hmm. if i wasn't immediately involved but that's also why i started doing all the extra gigs um that's why i started working at the miami film festival uh, because i was just desperate eager passionate to want to involve myself so the school really didn't broker or facilitate that in fact i vividly remember being conflicted with the decision of do i go to class to learn about film to the 1940s which was the name of the class and write a paper that's due that by set date, it was great. Or do I go work on an actual set for The Glades, which was an A&E crime show, where I could actually learn firsthand experience what yeah. it's like being on a set. So I made a choice. I ended up graduating with honors. I somehow figured it out, as college students do. Um, but, you know, it was an interesting kind of parlaying and fight for, you know, finding that place and better understanding like what I wanted to do within the industry and nothing on the production end was speaking to me, but I did love the atmosphere and the aura of creativity. Yeah. I ended up later doing publicity, um, which is its own animal on a different side of the coin of, you know, production. But, uh, you know, it was a great foundation. Miami was a great place to start it. I wish they actually filmed as much today as they did back this was like between 2009 and 12 they were filming so many things iron man 3 filmed i was in that movie too for a minute so for a minute for which minute, a minute was that literally the like the first minute of the film <laughs> they like set the stage of like sweden 1999 the millennium the millennium you know like you know this is when the internet was supposedly going to crash electricity was yeah gonna, y2k yeah y2k and so they were setting the stage for the opening of iron man 3 to take place in like sweden at some like y2k party 
But it wasn't in Sweden, folks. It was in Miami, Miami Beach at what? some ballroom at a deco building. Uh, but it was great. You know, we had clearly some tax incentives to bring productions here. Charlie's Angels on ABC was filming at the same time, didn't take off. But that's kind of what I remember as being mm -hmm. this moment in time for filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And what, what caused you the transition to Hollywood, like the Hollywood? How did you get over there? The real, the yeah, real, the real where they make the movies hmm. with the back rooms, you know. You mean the one where they film Griselda as Miami? Yeah. Shout out to Griselda. That looks Not the good. person, the show. It looks um, good though. It's great. Uh, it is f maddening to see the backdrop of LA slash Long Beach serving as Miami. Miami Beach, but they did that as far back as Dexter. After Bad Boys, yeah. Bad Boys too, but at least they did a lot filming here yeah. versus this one that. I can't recall if they did anything. Dexter, for sure, you're right, was all filmed in Hollywood. First season was filmed here. Yeah. And then they packed up, left, took all the elements. Because of a hurricane or something, right? There was something it's that tax incentive. Taxes, It right? goes back to taxes and the bottom line. Um, so the question you had was going to Hollywood. Yeah, how'd you get over there? I had dreamed of going to Hollywood since, I, yeah. since a wee little thing. I can remember the days where I was really trying to figure out a way to detach myself from my own family and emancipate legally to not be owned by them and to be self-sufficient and mm -hmm. go work in Hollywood. It didn't happen, folks. You need money for that. <laughs> But needless to say, after college, you know, it took me almost a year to find my way out of South Florida, just trying to save money to make that transition. And then I ended up going in 2013. I worked in intellectual property licensing and merchandising for a little, for like a two-year period. Um, for those that know the movie The Endless Summer, it's like a classic. It is the classic epitome of surf documentary from 1964. I worked on that with Bruce Brown, the filmmaker, um, just basically establishing a merchandise program. Anytime you saw the Endless Summer iconic T-shirt, at the Gap or Lucky Brand, I would mm -hmm. be facilitating those arrangements. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like my introduction to Los Angeles County. I was living in Torrance at that time for a brief period. Um, and then fast forward, I started working at Universal Studios as a VIP studio guide, the famed Universal Studios backlot tour. Damn, that's crazy. So you facilitated the tours? I did. I did the tours. So you would drive people around and be like, this is where we shot Jaws, this is where we shot this? Uh, I did not drive. I did not do the driving. Okay. We had our union as actors. I say that very loosely because I'm not. And then the drivers had their own. So you don't have an IMDb? Is that what you're saying? I do not. If I, if I look your I name up on IMDb, so. I won't find question. you. I'm probably going to find Just you. Just for OnlyFans. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> This predates the recording. Um, no, but it, it's a you know it's a very thematicized scripted you know theme park-esque but legit studio tour experience that takes people in a tram 150 people in four carts to be able to tour and see the back lot see a real working tv and film set or film studio and the, there, there's like people working movies are being made shows are being yep. made and you're doing the tours live Exactly. While they're recording with the actors. So they might bump into an actor while they're there. Yeah, that would happen. Um, in fact, while I was working there near the end, uh, they were filming <laughs> the NBC show The Good Place with Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. 
And so when I became, after being there two years, and I became a VIP guide, and I would actually, instead of a tram, be in a trolley, and it'd be like a more exclusive audience. Brandy, the musician, was one of my guests. You know, we would get out of the vehicle, walk the streets where they filmed Desperate Housewives, where they did Murder, She Wrote. So the VIP tour guide does that. The regular tour guide is the tram driver. They don't drive the trams. Oh, sorry. What, clear, okay, so they don't drive. Clear, how do they get around? No it's offense electric. to the actual drivers that are in a union and are proud to be Teamsters. Um, no, we were on cameras with a microphone on those trams, basically doing the whole show. Um, but needless to say, you know, it was really cool to be able to deconstruct for the commoner, for the viewer at yeah. home, people visiting um, – kind of just more or less this is what it looks like like for those that knew back to the future um from the 80s my favorite movie bro we had the original courtyard like the original new york style but could be any city um streetscape where the clock tower is still today oh the um, clock tower is there still it's still there it looks different than the movies because they always dress things I mean, it was up hit by lightning like four times yeah right good one <laughs> well actually funny enough you mentioned that because the majority of that New York downtown, like the back lots space, actually burned to the ground, except for the clock tower and the whole left side of that square where most of what you saw in Back to the Future was yeah, filmed. Where they the did 3D Jaws thing pops out. That whole set you're talking about is, is some of it was destroyed. Okay, I see um, what you mean. But you know, I would go and break this down, and while I was there, they were doing Hairspray Live on NBC, which was cool because then they turned into Baltimore, Maryland. Um, Bruce Almighty filmed there. I mean, You got I'm to actually, meet Jim Carrey? No, no, no. This is like way before oh. me. Can't throw names. I like wish. That. All right. Who's, did you get starstruck at all? Like, is there somebody you were like, damn, I can't believe this person is in front of me right now. This kind of jumps ahead to my days working in publicity at HBO. I worked on Game of Thrones, Curb Your Enthusiasm, I worked with everyone. I've met so many people at award shows on carpets that I worked for HBO, for the Emmys, the Golden Globes. Um, I think the one that I'm not really starstruck necessarily because it's work for me. It's a job. I'm professional. You know, there are some that I'm more inclined to want to follow up with or see how they're doing just because mm-hmm. I genuinely liked them as people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there isn't this like you know, unfounded prestige that some people in America think that Hollywood has on riding on their shoulders. Like these people oftentimes came from nothing and became who they are today based on their talent or their ability to network within the industry. But the one person that I was just shocked that I was standing next to two people was Meryl Streep. Um, I didn't work with her. Um, I did kind of surround myself a little bit when she was on Big Little Lies, which was a show I didn't directly work on, but every publicist at HBO kind of helped each other out in different um, facets or venues. But I actually stood next to her at the Screen Actors Guild on the red carpet. And that, you know, just that moment of like the screaming, the yelling, the 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 flashes of the photographers going off. And what are you doing there while you're there? What's your job on site? Facilitating interviews for talent. So I would be assigned to talent mm-hmm. from HBO that would be arriving at a specific time mm-hmm. and then we try to pre-set up or line up interviews with mm-hmm. Entertainment Tonight. Um, okay, so the interviews that we commonly see on the television 
with the specific actress or actor with the interviewee is done by somebody like you in the background? That's it's kind facilitated, of organizing that? yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. But, you know, mind you, if I've got a BC actor from Game of Thrones, right? They're not maybe Amelia Clark or um, what's his name? Not John. Uh, I can't remember his name. But Jon Snow's character? Yeah, him. Yeah, I, don't I can't his remember his actor. He's Jon Snow. He's That's just he Jon Snow. Well, anyways, when they show up, they're the A-list talent of that show mm-hmm. that interviewers and reporters know are coming and are excited to talk to just to get some, like, you know, some scoop on, like, what's coming up the season. What did you like? Just the sound bites for the news sure, waves. Sure. But sometimes we get actors that, you know, they're not they're known for being in the show. They're very famous. But when a reporter has an option between Emily Blunt standing next to your actor, they're going to prioritize her versus the person you have. It's a popularity contest Mm -hmm. and they have to try to maximize the short time that they have with actors, which is like two minutes an interview. It's not very long if that. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's more or less what I did just when it comes to red carpets on the backside, you know, when it came to photo producing and IDing, uh, press junkets, um, leaking photos to the press. That's what I did in that. So you would leak photos, like sometimes the leaked photos are leaked by the publicist? Sometimes. Yeah. I I feel like musicians are worse with this. Like Taylor Swift did this at the Grammys where she like plugged her own album coming out. Um, But needless to say, I wouldn't use the term leaked as much as I would drop um, because Mm -hmm. we always kind of pre-planned those photos to go out. With Game of Thrones, because there was sensitivity to certain spoiler moments in an episode, when it would air on the East Coast, we would send out a handful of photos that were kind of generic from the episode. Some people would run it that night. And then once it aired on the West Coast, all bets were off as to some of the spoilers getting out into the various streams like Twitter. And that's when we would send out another batch of photos that would show a little bit more revealing moments that might give it away as to like what happened. Um, like someone's death, for example. So how did you get that gig when you got to, to LA? How did you get the gig as a That's a great question. Um, that was a segue from universal to there. And the short answer to that was temping. I started temping. What does that mean? When you work with a temp agency and they kind of plug and place you in different industries or businesses Mm -hmm. based on the needs of that organization to hire temporary work basically so that's hence temp um but i told this temp company um staffing company let's just put it that way that i only wanted to work in entertainment and their only client was hbo interestingly enough nice what a great client right right for them so business i had temped on and off for about a year in finance and production um And I wasn't really a fan, to be honest, like at least the people that I was working for in short stints. It could have been like a few hours on one day. Maybe I got called back to come, you know, sit on the desk, answer the phones. Um, And then I had a month long stint in production and I hated it. And it was mostly because of the person I was working for. And then I like I went back to Universal And then I got a call saying an opportunity is opening up in the PR department. Would you be interested? And I'm like, not really, because (laughs) I haven't had the best experience there. 
and they're like, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but like, you know, I really think that you'd be a good fit for this department um, simply because of like the nature and the energy of the people that are working in it. And most important, the position is actually going to be posted because the person is leaving that you would be serving a temporary role for. So there's a possibility you could get hired. I was like, oh, actually, that doesn't sound half bad. Okay. And so from December, I think it was the day after my birthday, December 21st, for a few days, then there was a break. Everyone kind of left for the holidays, come back in January. Um, by end of January, I had a job offer with them, or early February of 2017. And that's kind of what started that journey. And how long were you in L.A. for? Almost eight years as a whole. Um, almost four at HBO near the end. And then AT&T bought the company, mm -hmm. Warner Brothers, HBO, Turner, and uh, turned it upside down and eliminated a lot of positions. I was one of them. Okay. So then that's when I was already back in Florida because of the pandemic, helping family, met my now partner. Um, and I was just like relearning the Florida way. Like, <laughs> you know, I vowed never to come back to Florida you know, what's your beef for Florida, bro? Say what? You be, what's your beef for Florida? The beef was <laughs> I grew up, you know, I had great years in entertainment, but I wanted to be where the real magic was happening. You wanted like to stay All Hollywood. things considered, like all those productions I mentioned before came from the source, right? Right. And I always wanted to be there because that's where the industry is. That's where the fraternity is. Um, and I really embraced that level of creativity and that aura again that i was lucky enough to be a part of so coming back to florida just seemed like a, a retrograde like a, a little bit of a step back from where i wanted to submerse immerse myself um creatively and so you know that's and you know my dad had passed away so there were a few personal reasons why florida just was not on my radar until it was and then during the pandemic i'm like hey it's actually kind of nice being back oh oh fort myers has come a long way downtown looks different there's all these cool places to eat i used to give tours at thomas edison's uh, historic home in fort myers so just going back there and kind of reliving my childhood memories all over again it was comforting especially after the chaos of uh the riots in 2020 uh the the pandemic of course mm -hmm. which you know took so you're in fort myers when that was happening nearest to the end yeah i'd come okay. back in august of 2021 um so yeah um but the journey led me back full circle to florida um and that's where the new pursuits have begun and mm -hmm. where my new track has kind of informed taken all these different passions of mine urban planning that i studied also in part in college to film and television and kind of merging those ideas into what i'm working on today okay and today is how did you get to opalaka yeah so how do you go those, from fort myers to opalaka well there was a few steps in between um, miami lakes was part of that journey i lived there for six months before I grew up in Miami Lakes. I ha my family had a house out there, so I yeah. grew up in Haiti. But our vacation home that we had was in Miami Lakes in the That's Moors. That's great. Yeah, that was we a made nice a community. We made a great friend who had a shop on Main Street there. So yeah, Main Street was dope. Yeah, I loved it back in the day. It's yeah, cute. With the theater. Yeah, it's nice. It's still there. Yep. Needless to say, you know, I got a job after losing mine. I was living in Miami Lakes. And then out of nowhere, I thought, what would it be like to have a home? Because I remember like 
viciously scrolling through Zillow like so many of us were during the pandemic. Um, just imagining what it would be like to have more space out in the country, fresh air, a nice size living room with a, a bedroom or two. And so I, I picked that back up. And this is the worst time to do it because of the, the economics of the housing market. But I was still compelled to try because I had met somebody that did mortgage lending. And he gave me a really compelling statement, which was, you actually have enough to, to buy something. And it wasn't much, mind you, but you know, I worked on my credit for years. It was stellar. My savings was top-notch, more or less. So I actually had something to, to, to do with that. And you know, there's this idea of no better way to make an investment than in real estate. And you know, I've always wanted that. Something historic was one of the pre-qualifications of what I was in search of. And in the midst of being in Miami Lakes, I started looking at listings. I was kind of starting to feel hopeless. I had seen a total of seven properties. The sixth one was in a city called Opalaca here in Miami-Dade. Um, for those that don't know, it's right next to Miami Lakes, just south of Miami Gardens. And um, once I saw this house, I couldn't believe how, how strong it was, you know, for being 96 years old. Um, I was really amazed that this thing was at the price that it was at and that it looked as good as it was versus the things that I've been seeing in Miami and Broward counties. And within a 24-hour period, I looked up the history of the place. I was just completely fascinated that in the 1920s, there was a planned community being built um, that exists today in the form of Opalaka that was based on the Arabian Nights novel, this ancient text that has been repurposed, readapted, retranslated over and over again uh, throughout the generations. Um, that a whole city was designed in and around this this theme, this mm -hmm. motif. So then I was thinking about my film days, coming back to Florida. It's a beautifully designed city. And so I wrote like a two-page letter to the owner of the house. And within 24 hours, I was under contract. Nice. So then Opalaka, 35, 40 days later, became home in September of 2021. Interesting. So you brushed over the history of Opolaka real quick, based in yeah. the 1920s with the uh, Arabian Nights theme. So yeah. um, this is what we met when we met the first time. We met last year um, for summer for one of these Opolaka projects. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I think they're trying to rebuild, kind of like still embrace the theme from, from the 1920s. But more or less, what's really interesting for me is, is Glenn Curtis and how he fits into this... Um, Opalaka Arabian Night story not being actually from Florida. So yeah. if you can please um, elaborate on who Glenn Curtis was and his involvement in Opalaka, you know, because he was the one that brought that whole idea. Him and another gentleman, which normally I don't have my phone on when I have my podcast, but there's so much notes that I have about this guy yeah. um, with his architect, Bernard Emil Muller. Yeah. So can you please um, kind of elaborate more or less who this person was and how did they get involved with Opalaka? I'll try to be brief because there's, you know, the Glenn Curtis story and his legacy is nothing short of just outstanding. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, he is known as the father of naval aviation. Mm -hmm. His contributions to the U.S. military as well as 
um, aeronautics in general, really in advancing at a time when America was being very competitive about um, and aggressive to trying to advance. Thank you. Good timing. Yeah. Um, at a time when America was really pushing the envelope to what their what what their innovations could lead to, you know, Edison was doing it with the incandescent light bulb, the phonograph, the battery. Yeah, that's what makes it so it's interesting. Just this it's time that time, in, yeah. that time where where like this tech was starting to come with Edison and, and um, the electricity, the lab, all this stuff was happening. The industrial and, and, age. Yeah, the industrial age was happening, and it's just so fascinating. And then here comes this guy. I think he's originally from uh, New York. New York. Yeah. And then he buys this. Was it him that bought the land, that bought the Opalaka land to build the project? So a little bit cart before the horse, but Curtis and his notoriety came because of his time up in Hammondsport, New York. Um, that's where he established the Glen H. Curtis Manufacturing Company. He did motorcycles for those that like motorsports. He was the guy that kind of really put that on the map. He was built the fastest man on earth because of a competition he did in Ormond Beach, Florida in 1907. Um, I think he was clocked at 145 miles per hour, which is absurd, like eight cylinders on a bicycle, a.k.a. motorcycle. Uh, was unheard of. So he had already been very familiar with Florida early on mm -hmm. in his career. And this was even before aeronautics. He got into aeronautics in large part thanks to Alexander Graham Bell, who mm -hmm. helped to invent the telephone. Yeah. He's um, the co-founder of AT&T, by the way. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Bell Company. And so needless to say, um, Curtis continued to, uh, you know, really refine his, his skill set in being a tinkerer and being an inventor, experimenter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure he no doubt had others helping him along the way, but he was adamantly and fiercely committed to the application of motors on existing cycle-like machinery, mm -hmm. like a bicycle or yeah. the, air, the, the gliders that they had. So a lot of people, including myself, when you go into, you know, grade school and you learn about American history, especially as it relates to aviation, the first more or less two names that come up are Wilbur and Orville Wright, the Wright brothers, the mm -hmm. first in flight. Um, what most don't know is that Glenn Curtis was the first pre-announced flight in American history. He actually was able to take a glider of his design and bring it off the ground for any length of period over a lake, and that was done in New York. But it's defined as pre-announced mm -hmm. because the Wright brothers were working toward the publicity machine that they were really clever with, mm -hmm. like Edison was clever Excuse me, with his empire. Tesla was not, even though he was brilliant. It's kind of like a similar dynamic. Glenn Curtis was the Tesla to the Edison kind of dynamic mm -hmm. against the Wright brothers. And Man, so a movie on this would be pretty interesting. Yeah, it Man, would be. Look at all the characters you already have in this movie. You have Edison, you have Bell, you have Curtis. You have all these forefathers of what we have today. That'd be right. interesting. It would be. Is there is there anything on that? I'm saying it like like there isn't any. There could be. I think there was one. There's definitely one on Edison, and I'm pretty sure the Wright brothers. I don't know about Curtis. Like maybe yeah. like a docu like series. Curtis. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like a whole like story that. based on Curtis and um, the Aerial Experiment Association. You the know. AEA. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so that that little group. Um, from Nova Scotia really helped to advance the and pioneer 
the mechanics of this industry. And that's mm -hmm. what Curtis also is brilliant with is, mm -hmm. you know, gears and, you know, wind calculations, things of that sort. Mm -hmm. Mind you, he had no more than an eighth, gra eighth grade education. <laughs> so the fact that he created an empire and was yeah. later decorated as the father of naval aviation because of the designs of airplanes he was designing for the U.S. Navy, um, it's brilliant. So needless to say, like many, he kind of sold off his wealth and did what most do, come down to Florida to, to retire. But he didn't really retire. He was fiercely committed to growing aviation in South Florida, starting in Miami Beach area, but then it went over into Hialeah. Uh, that later was established as one of his first developments um, and also a company. So his three housing projects was Hialeah, uh, Country Club Estates, Miami Springs, and his mm -hmm. last one in South Florida was Opalaka. Mm -hmm. um, a 4.2 acre property, right, project that he had. He named that Opatisha Wakalaka. What was a thousand acres? A thousand acres. Yeah, all of Opalaka. All of it. So he partnered Holy with a, a rancher named James Bright, who owned the land in large part, and I'm sure Curtis helped to acquire even more of it. And they went into business together with Curtis Wright. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the uh, Curtis Bright Properties mm -hmm. um, for Hialeah and Miami Springs. But Opalaka was different because Opalaka kind of started its its genesis and its thematic evolution at the time that the Florida land bloom of the 1920s started yeah. to take a decline. So I'm sure Bright and others around him were like, Curtis, you're cr you crazy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, why would you start a new housing project when all indicators are showing that the crash. market's actually going down? This is before the Great Depression, but he was committed to it. And yeah. so um, as soon as the seaboard airline, the railroad, came down from West Palm to Miami and Opelaka was the first stop in Dade County at that time, that was a huge deal, and that's what secured um, Opelaka's future um, until this day. Mm -hmm. We have the what the Tri-Rail uses today as their track is the original right. seaboard line, and we have the original historic train station, too. It's not the one that's used for passenger mm -hmm. loading, um, but what was nice is that Tri-Rail even kind of complemented the history of Opelaka and its Moorish Arabian-style identity by having the new station have those features next gotcha. to the historic one. Yeah. So um, so anyways, you know, it took him some time from 1920 to 25, 26 to get to an Opelaka, mm -hmm. but he had already started kind of planting the seeds in other industries. Mm -hmm. He had a, a tropical fruit company, a dairy farm, um, the Florida Dairy Farm. He had a movie studio, a silent film studio in Hialeah. Um, he had 18 companies from housing to all these other peripheral all based industries in Florida. in Florida. Nice. So he didn't retire is my point. Yeah. He never rested. And yeah. in fact, the aviation thing just continued to blossom under him. Gotcha. And um, when did he decide to hire architect Bernard Muller to do the Arabian Nights theme? Is I that think the 26, 27? That was 25. 25. He okay. had to have had him already kind of lined up, most mm -hmm. likely by summer because of the news of the seaboard and then quickly following with who do we peg to the design, who can actually execute this vision. The original concept for Opalaka was to do what's called a Tudor design or Robin Hood style where it's like the English Tudor architecture. 
um, because that's what Mueller was working in mm -hmm. for his designs for projects and commissions in New York. Um, but some point, someone at some time had the idea of the Arabian Nights, allegedly and largely influenced by the 1001 Arabian Nights novel. Mm -hmm. um, there was also a silent film from 1924 called The Thief of Baghdad with Douglas Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. That had the whole, it was wrapped in that world of Persian and Moroccan uh, influence. Yeah. And just it was exotic. It was yeah, a departure absolutely. for audiences to watch a silent film and be taken elsewhere. We take for granted when we sit in the theater, it's like, oh, that's CGI, that's filmed, or maybe that was practically done. Back then, just to even see a massive set of a castle, a Moorish-style palace in front of you, like you couldn't even fathom what it took to build that, mm -hmm. which is in large part why early on, Opelaka and its marketing strategy was combating or at least addressing what some might suspect was a movie set. Because again, there was filmmaking happening down mm -hmm. here, maybe not as abundant as Hollywood, but people thought that some of the images that they were seeing coming out and being promoted by the Opelaka company, Curtis and his team, um, was in fact a movie set. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. It was an actual livable beautiful area. town uh, country style environment where you could own a piece of land you could have a modest single family home and you could focus and really lean into the agricultural industry of the time which was booming um, especially since they referred to the Everglades as being um, the muck or the black gold because it you know yielded so many uh, successful crops and so a lot of people that were pioneering Opelaka early on were actually very interested in agriculture, as was Curtis, too. Nice. Okay, so now, um, based on my research here, he had um, Muller design about, what, 86 houses before there was a hurricane that happened in 26 that kind of broke down a lot of the project and kind of stopped the whole funding and the whole continuation of this evolution to make Opelaka into this Moorish themed residential yeah exactly yeah. so at one point it stopped and it was due to a hurricane and lack of funds after to basically restart from scratch somewhat so Mueller yes he he designed with his two associates out of New York I think the associates were here on site drafting a lot mm -hmm. of the residential properties um they they did something north of 80 to 100 designs in all in all in you know municipal commercial as well as residential structures and so a lot of people have heard about especially if you've done a walking tour if you've heard historians of the area speak about the 20s in particular of miami they always reference the great hurricane of 1926 um but unlike a lot of the coastal communities getting hit pretty hard and almost being annihilated because of that storm which I think scientists think was a category five back then with no notice other than like barometers going off the chart and like people not knowing what was happening with the atmosphere. Um, Opelaka and some inland communities were actually largely spared by the hurricane. So there is no document documentation that any structures were lost. Um, and in fact, as in terms of financing, yes, the hurricane did contribute to the later a quick demise of South Florida's appeal and allure nationally. But Curtis had a ton of money 
unlike George Merrick and others that kind of put all their eggs in one basket of farming or agriculture, he had all of his wealth from aeronautics and the U.S. Navy's that relationship. And so he was funding a lot of the project moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so interestingly enough, the historic home that I own as well as many others were actually built after the hurricane, not mm-hmm. before. There are a few that were, like 20 or so, I imagine, um, but a handful of them were actually 27 and on. Okay. Uh, but there's not many. Like, if you try to examine what from the era goes back to 1926 until 1929, which is where this design was prevalent, it's maybe it was at 1.60 total, and now it's, like, dwindled to 50 and... God only knows moving mm-hmm. forward in time, we might lose some more. Not my house, because we've taken a lot of care and pride into restoring it exactly how it would have looked in 27. Kind of been freakish about that, turning into like a mini movie set in of itself. Nice. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of like, just for clarity, you know, Opalaka was in a strong position to keep going. Really what ended the whole concept and the development's progress was Glenn Curtis dying in 1930. Again, the city was founded in 26. He died in 1930. Mm-hmm. That was the moneymaker. That mm-hmm. was the financier for the whole thing. Yeah. And so we weren't able to have that capital that you know we often dream about or think about or we see vis-a-vis looking at some of the iconic historic buildings we have today. Mm -hmm. And even if we don't have an abundance of historic Moorish homes, um, the few larger structures we have are pretty exceptional. I'm not sure how many communities in South Florida and Florida in general, let alone America, can say they have a historic Egyptian-style temple in the middle of their downtown. And that was supposed to be the Opalaka Bank. was never completed as a bank wasn't outfitted or designed inside or out to kind of complete it. But it's clearly the exterior of that building very much resembles a temple. Mm -hmm. um, And it's a national historic landmark. Um, Our city hall building that's being restored right now. That's the one we met at, right? Yep. That's well under its way to a complete restoration after years of neglect. City got its stuff together and is moving forward with a launch sometime this year in 2024. Um, But even just the extraordinary nature of the composite design of all these, you know, Far East influences, Mm -hmm. Persian, as I mentioned, Iranian, kind of one in the same Moroccan uh, architectural designs. It's it's extraordinary. So um, that's kind of where I'm going with what where my passion is, you know, from giving free historic walking tours. This year I'm introducing two bike tours and actually going over into the Opalaka Airport side mm-hmm. to tell a really complete story about even how that property has affected for better or for wor- and worse uh, Opalaka proper. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be really exciting for me. It's a tour I've never done before, let alone cool. on a bike would be great to have beer alongside that journey but needless to say you know people are showing up you know i did three or four walking tours last year they were hits 20 to 30 people showing up for each all over the county region in fact some people came from west palm right on the tri-rail stop at the station get off take my walking tour um but it's helping change the perception of a place that really deserves to be acknowledged for just how unique and extraordinary it is, but also the people there are absolutely fantastic, really wholesome, 
um, and just normal. It's like a bed bedroom community, but you know, it doesn't have this like edge to it that so many other places do. And yeah, we have a long way to go to kind of improving upon, you know, our appearance, our economic base, um, even just revitalizing our downtown, but it's happening in the form and rooted in historic preservation and heritage. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just proud to be, to own a piece of it, quite literally property mm -hmm. and building and have created the Opelaka Preservation Association discoveropalaka.org that encapsulates kind of a one-stop shop of Opalaka's history. It's an evolving project. I started at the beginning in the 20s and I'm working my way decade by decade, but I just want to make this accessible to people um, and really get them inspired to really lean into what made this place so special before originally and why it's so special today and worth expanding upon. And the Moorish motif, that aesthetic architecturally is super important to uphold because that's what makes a place different. Yeah. You know, when you go to a Doral yard or any public setting, you're always kind of struck by the environment and its design. Opalaka should always go back to the source, go back mm -hmm. to the source material um, and that point of inspiration that they were really vying to be something different and unlike any other place. That's Mic very, drop. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> very interesting um, because Opelaka throughout the decades, it's funny, like you said on the website, you start with the 1920s and you're going to go progress, you know, through the history. But just 40 years ago, Opelaka was one of the most dangerous counties or places in America. So how, yeah. how is Opelaka now trying to separate itself from that kind of history to become a place where people should come and move and live there and raise families there if it was yeah. once a very dangerous place well there's certainly you know it's a misnomer to think you can distance yourself from history nobody mm -hmm. can some people might willfully or blissfully forget history or choose another narrative um, to buy into but at the end of the day this is about accountability and this is about consistency and leadership that's true for the role of the city manager uh, having consistency and leadership of a police chief that leads a police force of 35, 40 officers, and a city commission that respectfully honors the, the position of being a commissioner and really speaking to the needs of the community, but also really trying to balance that with looking ahead, you know, mm -hmm. and really trying to advance the city because you're not helping the community if you're stuck in the past, if you're stuck in your ways, yeah. if you've got an antiquated way of uh, politicking, um, it's not going to move the community forward. We need a balanced economy. We need affordable housing. We need to help uh, offset gentrification for those that you know are part of the community and want to stay part of that. You know that Those are conversations rooted in generational wealth and mm -hmm. equity and all that. Um, but you know, again, you can't distance yourself from that reputation. You have to hit head on, and you have to really make it apparent as to the why of Opalaka. I think that's kind of like the base, the basis of where I'm at with a preservation association and walking tours versus where the city's at, and reintroducing themselves with the brand of Opalaka to whatever it might be, another right. municipality, the county, the state. You know, you got to earn respect, um, especially after years of negligence of kind of running something into the ground. Mm -hmm. But um, 
you know, some communities never see the light of day and they never come through and they end up dissolving. And I really don't want that for Opelok. And I really hope that what's, what's part of the fabric of today's leadership will stay and will continue to, to build upon a level of progress that is only making the place look better. So when you ask, like, why would it be a place for a family to move into? Mm-hmm. Because here's all the reasons why we've worked up until this point to deserve a better look at from anybody, a new home buyer to an investor, um, you know, even giving our elementary schools a shot since we have three elementary schools in our city limits. So um, I do believe that it's it's changing. Tell me about do you know anything about Terrence Binder Pinder? A former commissioner. A former commissioner that was tied with embezzling like millions of dollars. Like yeah. instead of actually putting money to work, he was putting money in his pocket. And he, he wasn't the only one, but yeah. No, he definitely was not. He just he, had a tragic end. Yeah, very interesting. He killed himself by driving his SUV into a tree. Yeah. Yeah, what a way to go, right? The day, I think I read it was the day before he was to turn himself in to yeah. the investigators or something. I mean, look, you know, you... You clearly he wasn't going to be acquitted and was being charged with something he was very much at fault for doing. Mm-hmm. But it begs the question, what else could there have been for him to make that decision to take his own life? And it's tragic. But so is his misuse of of a of a um, respected government position intended to represent the people. And I feel for the people that don't have they that they don't believe they have that in their elected officials and yet there isn't like a slew of candidates to choose from it tends mm-hmm. to be a cycle of the same you know old timers that want to take a stab back at being said commissioner um you know i don't know pinder's like political legacy i don't know if someone preceded him mm-hmm. um i know that that tends to be a trend in opalaka with whoever's there now or was recently there had a family member that also kind of served that role. Um, but needless to say, that was a dark time. Um, and it wasn't that long ago. We're talking like what, 2017. Yeah. Um, Cause there was a raid in, in the, um, in the building in 2016, there was an FBI raid. Mm-hmm. Um, I have it here at, let's see if I can, the city it. hall. Yeah. The city hall. And w- what did they uncover over there? Is that when they started uncovering all this stuff on Terrence Pinder? I think it was a, 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 a swath of people that they yeah. were examining and they needed. You'd think you they know, get rid of the evidence. Like, well, how of course not. They, they confiscated it. And, you know, that's. So you just chilled at City Hall because the City Hall that we were at was under repair. So this was before it was in they, repair. We have another City Hall building, the newer one. So that's where Why did I think they raided. Um, yeah. It's crazy that I thought that that one was in function the whole time, no. and you guys closed it to the guys the, the remodel. So the no. documentary that I um, was with you on for that, what 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 is it about the documentary? What what did we shoot uh, that day about the building itself? And you were the guest host. Yeah, I was like billed as the town historian, and then the mayor was there to do his part yeah. in kind of positioning Opalaka, but. The building um, was being featured for a show called Mysteries of the Abandoned on Discovery Channel. Um, and they tend to, to highlight and feature thank places. Thank you very much. They tend to hire feature in places that, um, that 
are quite literally abandoned that might have this mystique or aura to it. And we'll see just how dark and dim they get in terms of telling the Opalaka story pegged to that building. I'm curious to know how they're going to frame it. Um, But that's why we met for that shoot. Um, And that's supposedly coming out this year at some point. Um, And hopefully it actually looks like an interesting product of what people can expect to see in an Opalaka. Um, You know, it's fine to address and answer questions about the political uh, stain, if you will, of the past. But, you know, I'm more interested. Well, I am very much interested in accountability of present day or future candidates. Um, But I'm more interested in kind of thinking of ways in which to bring resources and opportunities in the community. So tell me about yourself and how did you get so passionate about Opalaka? What what sparked this love for it apart from like getting the the house that you're in, which I'm assuming kind of sparked the history, the look up the history, and I'm guessing it kind of falls down this kind of rabbit hole where you just started uncovering all this amazing history about Opalaka and it kind of ties into the Opalaka Preservation Association and why you wanted to start something like this and why you invest so much time in Opalaka. It goes back to and what I would encourage anyone to do, which is to tap into your inner child because that inner child of Alex Van Meckel in Fort Myers, Florida in the 90s and 2000s uh, went back to source material in the form of historic landmarks, Thomas Edison's house, hence why I started giving tours there, then going to school and being fascinated by film, television creation, working in the industry, and then coming back to my home state only to find a city that was inspired, designed, and constructed to be this, you know, Moorish magic, magical set. Can you imagine what it looked like back then? Like, at its heyday. Oh, I do. You know, that's part of what I love about where my head goes sometimes, and I can't, I don't have AI queued up, you know, for there to be output in the form of Adobe Photoshop or something of the sort, but... I know what it looked like. That's when I walk around downtown. You kind of you know, transport yourself back then? Yeah, especially if I give tours. When I did it at Thomas Edison's house, I saw what it looked like in 1929, which is kind of where I framed the story of Edison and the buildings that we would walk into that are still there today. Um, with Opalaka, it's the exact same thing. Um, it's just I have an entire city to play with. This mm-hmm. is my playground. This is my this is my stage to kind of set the tone and take the transport for myself as well as the guests that I'm with back to 1926. And I want to be clear, that story is not inclusive of all people. <laughs> you know, this was a white town. This was a white development. Um, there's this term sundown town of like some white communities, white led established communities kind of basically either legislatively or just understandingly uh, kind of kicking out black people after a certain time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Opelaka went to that extent, but it certainly had elements of that. And black people could only live on the east side of town, which is where a lot of the crime and corruption happened in the 90s with, you know, drug trafficking and Mm -hmm. such. Um, But, you know, as important as it is to revel in and imagine this 
and this beautiful landscape, this barren landscape with these dotted massive structures, massive for the time. Now we have like brickle and you know that's massive but back then to see a three-story mosque-like palace spring up in the form of what later became a city hall municipal building Mm -hmm. it was extraordinary and you know all around you all you saw was sand some paved you know uh, roadways and a lot of pine trees um but you know you also want to take it a step further and look at the demographics when you take that transport. So you have a full understanding and context of what that would have looked like Mm -hmm. for another, a group of people that couldn't enjoy the allure and the beauty, the way that somebody with money and of a certain color could. Um, And I'm not suggesting all of Opelika was racist, but this was the Jim Crow era. This is when, you know, the, the line was clearly drawn mm-hmm. as to where black people fell alongside whites. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was like Hispanic, but a very small percentage. Uh, the original or one of the original directories that accounted for populations back then was called the Polk Directory. And a special one was done in 1927 in Opelika. And I think there was like 251 residents registered. And of that number, there were, like, 25 black families, and then it specified, like, five Cuban families or something like that. Uh, I'd love to know more about who they were and where mm-hmm. they came from. I don't have that just yet, but that's part of what I'm pursuing in pursuit of and very interested in. I don't just talk about the architecture. It's yeah, fascinating. Which is fascinating. It is the its anchor. Yeah. It is the draw even today. Yeah, because it's a visual medium that people can be like, wow. Right. You know, so it automatically draws it's visceral. you in. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't see these buildings anywhere else in the country yeah. as limited it's so as they random, are. You right. know, like to be like, yeah, I want this whole town to look like Arabian Nights themed. Like like you said, must have felt like a movie set back then. Because For sure. thinking about the, the type of people that would have went back then to these types of events, because they did host events when, when they were there. So can you imagine all the celebrities, all the political politicians that were that would go there the higher ups and it's just like became this wealth community sure. and then the hurricane puts a stop on that it's pretty in part crazy. but you know true for any art form some things go out of style right mm-hmm. for example we talked today about being woke or, or you know not being appropriate or in keeping with what is accepted in 2024 yeah you know there's a lot of misogynistic and sexist comments made in miscongeniality with Sandra Bullock. It's one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. But I revisited it recently, and there's a lot of one-liners that are in today's world. If that was in a movie, it wouldn't fly. Same is true for the idea of something so distinct, in my opinion, and that's why Opelaka lost a lot of its special features like domes on homes or minarets. A lot. In addition to just maximizing real estate in the form of livable areas, you know, people would cover... There are really charmed um, porch rooms with, like, pointed arches in the front, blocked it off with, like, a, a square window and yeah. takes away all the character. Things go out of style. Times change. And um, I think that Opelaka suffered from really not really fully embracing the Arabian Nights identity. Um, but I think it is, I believe, personally, it's, it's, it's where we can always 
go back to and really kind of draw inspiration from and that's why it's so important mm -hmm. to focus in new construction having it i mean three or four of our gas stations have domes on them it's not because the developer wanted domes on a standard gas station it's because they were informed about this place and how and they felt that they could contribute something yeah. to that identity Fantastic. and people don't appreciate that <laughs> the way that i would like them to but that's something that I'm working on to try to get the city to help fund, mm -hmm. which is bring back domes on historic homes, because then it's complementary, not just to what it originally was, but it'll help to establish the identity back over again. Yeah. That's long been forgotten or underappreciated. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to uh, the naval base. Curtis built that naval base, right? He uh, campaigned for them to set up next to Opalaka. Right. And that so it was, was like his own private, like, airstrip. It was his own. He owned it, and it yeah. was an air base, and an, I think he gave it to the city at some point, but it was all for the purpose and benefit of and Opalaka. Are, and then the airport itself was used very heavily during World War II, and uh, the U.S. military had a big presence in Opalaka, and that also all changed. All over South Florida. Yeah, and that also changed the face of Opalaka for couple decades because there's right. it was like this militarized zone right um you mentioned you're gonna start doing tours uh on this um naval base and stuff is there any, anything interesting you can tell me that you would be sharing with some of your tour guides yeah um well i will show people what i believe to be the original land that curtis would have stepped on to be able to appreciate opalaka's untouched beauty went before it was built as an airport or a city so we'll talk about that in the location where i believe that happened we'll see from a distance a hangar that still stands from i believe it's 1942 um, that was built um, it's the last one that remains from my understanding on that property connected to the navy um, the Marines also were there in the 50s for a brief-ish period. Today, the Coast Guard is there, the Miami Coast Guard. Um, and even what today's Opelika Executive Airport looks like with all these private luxury terminals, the Concourse Racing Club, and ironically how that connects to Curtis's racing fascination. Mm -hmm. um, and then to make our way back over to Opelika to see kind of like the progression of going from aeronautics to development in the form of the Moorish revival design. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I plan on carving out. There's also more just in terms of like the blimps that used to be there, the Goodyear blimps, the German Graf Zeppelin. Um, that's also the blimp hangar that was destroyed in Bad Boys for the film so there's a little film history there mm, i see which scene you're talking about you're talking about towards the end of bad boys one when they're racing down the strip with the porsche Something and he like tells that. marlon from now on that's how you drive yeah. that's how you drive could have been <laughs> I, you know i watched it so many years ago and i remember oh, an I explosion movie, but bro. michael bay is all about explosions and oh it's called bay him for a reason yeah like he has his own significant that. style and i actually like I, I listen to a lot of reviews and read a lot of reviews of film because I'm a, I'm a big film buff and I love that. And I love working in, 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 the, in the business as well because like you, I love, I love the camaraderie that comes with working on sets. Like the, yeah. the agenda to 
have an uh, ultimate goal and everybody's working towards that ultimate goal which is completing the movie and doing all these things yeah. it's it's absolutely fantastic and these directors that have these their own significant style and look it's 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 great because it's it shows that a person has mastered their craft like they have a significant look that everybody would recognize right like you don't need to know who's directing it but the style already tells you like I've seen a style of movie like this before and everybody that's seen Bayhem movies Michael Bay's movies know that he has a significant style that's why Transformers and all these they all look like they live in one universe like it was all shot by the same guy which technically it was right but um yeah, it's fantastic I love that part about the film industry I love how directors have their own way of expressing their own artistic you know um touch on movies and with by using their own styles it's absolutely fantastic. yeah, yeah Same thing with composers with oh, music composers i think it's film. even more obvious like a tone or style mm -hmm. with com composition for sure yeah. like anybody um, that listens to um film scores well i i'm a big film score guy so i re i collect a lot of film score vinyls that's my thing that's kind of like my hobby is to collect vinyls nice. um a lot of it is film scores and I was having this conversation the other day with one of my guests on my podcast, and we were talking about how important film scores is in a movie and how it can make and break uh, a movie sometimes. You know, mm. you could have a bad movie with a great soundtrack right. and a great movie with a shitty soundtrack. You know, it's just the level of, of like, importance music is. It's fantastic. And, and yeah. I love that you said that because I went to the Astoria Film Museum mm -hmm. in New York and they have a interactive kiosk that plays clips from movies and then you choose different scores for that movie. One of them is what was used in the film and the other two or three are something completely different. And the point of that, that, ex that portion of the exhibit was to stress the value that scores have in mm -hmm. evoking emotion and capturing a moment and up, you know, setting a tempo or a feeling for mm -hmm. something leading up to another reaction to whatever you will come. Yeah. And I remember clicking on uh, a clip from the movie Twister, which is one of my favorite I love films. That movie. And I, I love the, the soundtrack. Day. It's so yeah. great. Love the soundtrack. And I remember listening to the other ones and being like, no, this doesn't work because the song is literally called Wheatfield. It's the beginning of the movie, and it's a it's a helicopter like kind of pan shot going over the wheat field, tracking the red truck from the movie, and you know that's the beginning of the movie. That's like you know it's setting a positive, upbeat, vivacious tempo, and it's unmistakably Twister. But then the other scores are like. What this doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Like this doesn't fit the sweepingness of the camera yeah. movement, and so I thought it was really cool that they did that, and I love that they really deconstructed, you know, filmmaking in that yeah. in that way. It, it it's interesting the the back stage of filmmaking with producers and how much power they can have on on, on film sets. That's right. why directors' cuts exist in movies. For those that don't know, if a director a director is hired for a movie. They have a vision that they want to see come on the big screen. They find a producer, the producer helps fund it, and all these things, right? But a lot of times, the person with the money dictates kind of what 
happen some on parts set of sometimes. the output. Yeah. Sometimes they're like, okay, I'll fund this project, but I want this actor to play this role, or I want that actress to play that role, or I want to twist twist and tweak the, the, the script, or I want to bring in my own script supervisor to change it, make it more this. Right. And then the director is always in this conflicting like argument sometimes based on his artistic um, creativity on the project that he's been hired for, by the way, because it's his movie. Right. Ends up being butchered on the back end. And a lot of times movies that had like great soundtracks were scrapped because the studio wanted to bring in a different soundtrack to emulate a successful movie that came out that same period and it's just a, a mismatch and and it's a big problem that we have today in Hollywood and why there's so many strikes you know and why it's important for these strikes to happen like the one that happened I think last year the writer strike like if these strikes don't happen then the produce the production companies are are always going to walk all over the artistic um, integrity of directors or filmmakers because they they don't they see business they don't see art you know they're like how am I gonna market this movie to make money if I'm gonna invest a hundred million dollars into your project right and your whole project is is like a lecture the only person that can pull that off today is Christopher Nolan with Oppenheimer like he literally put a history class in a three and a half hour movie and people yeah. loved it thirteen Oscar nominations for that movie eleven Oscar nominations for Poor Things which I didn't get to see by the way I don't know did you get to see that movie. You know, I have the one been so out of. I haven't seen a movie since Barbie. Since what Barbie? I yeah. didn't see Barbie in theaters. Shame on you. Did you like it? It's excellent. You like that? <laughs> I just love that something so colorful and superficial had so much heart and meaning to it, and yet it's very commercial. But it's also auteur. It's also very artistic. Yeah. And clever and pulled inspiration from other. Greta Gerwig is a fantastic director. She is. Yeah, she's fantastic fantastic movie the thing that i'm fearful of is sequels you know because once oh, one's great yeah like god forbid they ever make an et sequel or remake et like you don't remake some yeah, movies i agree they, just like because it's, it's like lightning striking in the same location twice yeah. one after another like you just can't replicate some of the the moments that are captured on screen let alone edited, you know, you talk about director's cut, mm. they have parameters and at that time talking about things going out of style, maybe that scene didn't work, but then a director's cut comes out and implants a scene that they've sat on for as much time as they may have yeah. and then they realize, hey, this actually does work and this will make up an extended director's cut that mm -hmm. people, the fans especially, would love to have. Like, I would love there to be a director's cut of Jurassic Park, like the original one. Because I know the wood. So good, I know the word, the, the movie, step by step, beat by beat. But imagine another 15 minutes of it that you've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yet like it's a masterpiece. And stuff like that. Yeah, there. I mean, that's what's great about digital content. I'm not, sorry, not physical content, like right. physical media. Like right. buying DVDs, buying Blu-rays. It's like, well, why would I buy a Blu-ray today? and like start a whole collection and buying these these criterion collections or arrow universe collections or whichever one of these publication companies that are now printing these physical medias is for the extra content i mean sure you could go on youtube and probably look them up but yeah. when you're watching a movie right at least for me sometimes the movie automatically wants like invokes me to go into the making of that particular movie like how did they right. shoot it where did they shoot it how did they 
get the or TV show or TV show like Griselda. Like I didn't know much about her. I, I didn't know anything about her. The cocaine TV grandmother? Of course. Bro, she's wild. Yeah. Didn't know she's anything wild. about it. Didn't grow up in Miami. So why would I have had any awareness of her? And I don't, I don't deal. So <laughs> I certainly don't know who she is or the product. Yeah. But, you know, the series may beg the question of, and I went on a downward spiral of like trying to figure out who she was, what was authentic and accurate to that era the locations, mm -hmm. her personality, Sophia's depiction of her. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what do you think of her casting as that role? I mean, I think, I mean, she's definitely far more beautiful. Um, you know, yeah. She's, she's a model. Griselda candidly wasn't. No, she so definitely wasn't. That, that part, I was just appreciating what she, how she interpreted and, and really evoked mm -hmm. who this person was and, you know, and some might falter for this or the production for that matter, but humanized her too as a mother, a caring one at that, mm -hmm. despite all the other. Well, that was a big things. thing with, with The Godfather, you know, and at the time when The Godfather was being made and thinking it was going to be like another mob movie, like from the 40s and 50s, and it was not. It was a movie about family, yeah. you know, and it was a completely different way of looking at what these people represent and they're sure. not just killers or these things they're they're family people they have moralities they have love and, and well, they that's party a stretch and, uh, moralities i mean bro come <laughs> on the godfather dropped some logic i love that it movie. did yeah. it did but you know I mean, especially when you look at how when i mean like by the morality i'm talking about like how it's it's kind of related to me personally in the sense how like my grandparents taught me like ethics and like dinner table ethics how to treat a woman how to open the door for people all these things and i'm not comparing that stuff to the godfather but the godfather plays that kind of portrait of the father and the son when yeah. they have all these moral values like he doesn't want to sell drugs he's strictly out of drugs he's only going to do like gambling and stuff like that drugs are too dirty yeah. so he has these standards that kind of separate him from all the other people not to say he's not a criminal he's still a criminal they're still bad people right but the way they the way they portrayed him as a family man and how he was this like he always loved his wife and his family comes first and he you know the way he raises kids it's it has a certain um pride in loving family and being close to family and family is ultimately the most important thing at the end of the day blood is thicker than water you know so it's it paints this picture of of i think a great family dynamic even though it's, they, most of them die, you know, throughout the series. But it's just the way that they're portrayed, how Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo wanted to portray gangsters. They're yeah. not just like these gun-trotting guys that are going around, you know, selling drugs, robbing banks. You know, they're typical mobster stuff. It's more than that. They're family men. They're married men. They're fathers. They're uncles. Right. You know, they're all these things. And it's great. It's a great movie. There's a great show called The Offer on Paramount that kind of depicts the making of of the godfather and oh i heard about this and that show is amazing amazing and i didn't know this but frank sinatra he hated that he hated mario puzo for because he thinks that johnny fontaine's character is based off him mm. and they didn't like each other they almost fought in, in, a, in a restaurant one time and it was, it was wild like i've never seen like frank sinatra in that light before right. like from his documentaries that i've seen frank sinatra frank sinatra always Looked like he was this glamorous icon. But in this show, he's a mean motherfucker. And he doesn't like 
that guy and he really wanted to like hurt him and, and wanted to fight him and all these things because he didn't like how he represented his image in the movie sure. and never seen Frank like that before so it's kind of weird it's like that sweet voice can also be that mean looking guy when he oh, wants Frankie. to be <laughs> old blue eyes over old there old blue eyes yeah the great documentary on him on HBO I think came out it's like four hours long it's fantastic it's called Sinatra nice like that uh, that whole era like that whole fascination with the 40s 50s these artists I love that time like film noir is like my favorite type of movies yeah. Casablanca Maltese Falcon the detectives you know that's for me that's that's bygone. cinema that's, that's movies yeah today it's more spectacle Right. Back then, it's more, it's more substance over style. Today, it's style over substance. Right, and plus they had pretty, um, pretty influential and very um, thought out marketing and PR campaigns yeah. attached to all of it. Even if it was just a matter of like, who was dating who, like that was all manufactured for the benefit of the public mm -hmm. to take and run with. Today, we don't celebrity doesn't have the same impact i think especially since yeah there are no know, movie stars today yeah you know and that's like when i saw like a meryl streep going back to that question i you know i saw her and then jane fonda came in not long after that and i just look at these women and i'm like these are the last of movie stars when i spent exactly when i spent the day with nicole kidman even if she's younger i was like even she is one of the last of the movie stars mm -hmm. so you know, it's yeah, just Tom Cruise, him too. Will Smith, Brad Pitt. These guys were movie stars. These guys, if if Brad Pitt, Denzel Washington, these people's names were tied to a movie poster, you're watching that movie for Denzel Washington. Right. Today, if it's not an intellectual IP, no one's watching a movie. That's why you have Barbie. Right. That's why you have the Marvel Universe. People are not going to the movies to watch the actress or the actor perform and do his magic. They're there to see a character. They're there to see Iron yeah. Man. They're there to see Superman. They're there to see Barbie. You know, the movie the movie star is not what it was in the '90s, man. Like I miss that era, I really do. Yeah. I think the best of film. There's was definitely in more heart too in the yeah. '90s. Too. And there's no there's no um. What are the 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 low budget the medium budget movies? There's no more medium budget movies. It's either you got a low budget movie like 50 mil or less, or it's a 250 million dollar epic. Yeah. Like back in the day, the 90s, like a lot of Jim Carrey's movies, Jane Fonda's movies, the movie Helen Hunt, Twister. These movies are under $80 million. There's this medium of movies, medium budget movies that were super successful in the 90s. But today they don't fly. They don't. They become TV shows. Right. So like movies like um, like Unforgive, like uh, Unfaithful with Richard Gere and um, Diane um, Diane Lane, I think her name is. Mm -hmm. It's a movie about infidelity. But movies like that, like. People are not going to watch that movie today. If that movie yeah. came out today, like it's, it's, well, it's, it's also crazy. viewing habits too. Like yeah. I'm struggling to get myself to go to the theater because it's so fucking expensive, bro. I got a solution for you. I don't rip shit. No, no, no. I got you, bro. So Regal, this oh, is something this I movie pass thing. Yeah. It's fantastic, bro. Okay. It's $23 I might, a I was an early subscriber to movie pass and then it folded and now it's back then I did it Bro, for AMC, but I got to do something because I've not, again, other than Barbie and spending a pretty penny, dinner was included. Um, I don't go to the movies. <laughs> dinner better be included. I know, <laughs> but taking me to movies two that's, hours? The, that's the only competitive business model against streaming. And that's yeah. why everything gets repurposed into a six part, eight part, 10 part. Yeah. Um, and it's even becoming 
less than 10, like a Game of Thrones, because you can accomplish the same but still get them locked in, the viewer, for any period of time. But then there's the difference between an air schedule versus drop. Um, the difference between how an HBO releases something versus Netflix. And I've always adhered to HBO because I, I like the anticipation. I like waiting for the next. But a Netflix would argue probably, or Hulu, I think they kind of adopt a similar model to HBO, but kind of find an in-between between those two, um, that if we don't lock them in here and now and have them binge it through, yeah. then we're going to lose them because yeah. something else has already got their attention. But if the quality is there, people will come back on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, they will. It'll build the hype. Mm-hmm. God, I mean, when is going to be the next Game of Thrones, if ever, you know, creating I mean, they, the Sunday they, night? They tried with the House of Dragons, and that didn't work. I mean, it's working to an extent, but it's, you know, anything like needs a, to build. There's a fatigue thing, too. Because they overmilked certain things, you know. Like, look what Disney does. Like, like Disney has acquired most of the production companies out there now. It owns all of it, almost every IP out there. Yeah. It's except for Florida. Shouldn't be allowed, honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, and and if anything, Disney is good at it's milking its properties, like right. to the point where people get tired of it. Well, it's gonna have a, it's gonna kick back on them because especially just even going and experiencing their worlds at theme parks, it's becoming a privilege. And like, it was never intended to be that for yeah. the average income. It's so expensive now, bro. Just, just to go for the day, I think it's like a hundred bucks or so. So imagine you have a yeah. family of five people. Yeah. You know, now like I want to sign up for the Regal or whatever pass. So yeah, t- t- tell you a little it. bit about that. It's $23 a month and it's unlimited. Are you being paid to say this? No, I'm not. I just love the service because I love to go to the movies. Like. For me, I much prefer to pay the $23 a month for the movie theater subscription than to pay Netflix, which I don't have. You know, I could have streaming services at home. But when I have the, the Regal thing, it entices me to go to movies, even for movies that I would normally, like, just watch at home, right? So right. you're just watching the movies because it's free. You pay $23, and you can go every day if you want. It doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's free. Well, not free. You pay, you pay the monthly subscription, but you can go as many times is what I'm saying. So even those like movies, like for example, you know how you do this endless scrolling on Netflix, you can never find something to watch, so you end up just picking anything and you kind of just watch it. I don't know what you're talking about. Dude. I'm just kidding. Everybody does this. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times, how many hours I've probably wasted scrolling just through, like what am I going to watch? Because you want to make sure that what you commit to is worth your time exactly. until so, the but time But this is why I like about the movies. Once you buy that ticket, you're locked in. You're locked in that chair? With those... I mean, you could get open-mouthed popcorn eaters and everything in between. That's kind of annoying, though. I'm not gonna lie; <laughs> it's a big pet peeve of mine. It's like they want to eat when the movie's happening. God, people and it's suck just sometimes. Like loud, Sorry if you're one of those people, but you need to stop. It yeah. is unfortunate. Eat the nachos during the trailers, guys. Like I don't want to hear the mouths. I don't understand why there can't be healthier, less obnoxious food options for people to buy than nachos you want a and popcorn. Like, like, they yes, they actually yes. Or burger. Like it doesn't have to be the loudest food group yeah. out there. It's like chewing celery. Yeah. At least celery would be healthy. There's nothing you healthy. Imagine a whole group of people in the theater just crunching on yes, celery. Yes, actually I could and I would love that. Or fruit, you know, like but Jesus Christ, like they've really sold and 
inextricably connected popcorn and nachos to the movie experience, yeah. and it ruins the movie experience. You know they spray the popcorn scent in their AC to make you like the whole thing smell. That, that doesn't popcorn. surprise me. I also know that the butter that they put on popcorn isn't really butter. Oh, definitely not butter. So you know, and they put something in their drink to make you urinate. That would be faster. A, yeah, that would be a whole other sure. <laughs> podcast just to talk about the ills of corporate society in regards to your own personal health and the choices you don't really realize you're making just by buying a simple luxury like popcorn or yeah. soda but at this point we should know all the wiser that those things are not good for our health yeah so it shouldn't be a surprise that we have colorectal cancer when we're putting shit into our bodies Bro, the diet of americans is is really bad compared to like some parts some other parts of the country like the amount of cancer yeah. we have here just in the u.s and that's how much people have diabetes talk. that's a whole other time yeah that's a whole other conversation with somebody i got enough on my plate with opalaka yeah. my own life i don't know so. enough about that stuff too to even talk about it i'll just butcher people's names and paraphrase a bunch of stuff but yeah yep. it's it's crazy so tell me um what's next for the for you besides the the naval tours like what are you doing now are you still working with opalaka or in any way I'm or is working it just at like an organization in opalaka and doing the walking tours so um the that's your full-time one. gig what that's your full-time gig what you're doing now not the walking tours no the uh, working with opalaka yeah, yeah 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 not the city but another organization and i just published on discover opalaka on instagram and facebook as well as the website discoveropalaka.org all the tours for 2024, all the walking tours as well as the bike tours. So now people can sign up. It's free. Mm -hmm. And uh, how long are those tours, roughly? About two hours. Mm -hmm. Do you have a cafecito break in between that? That would be great. No, you should. Do you know a sponsor? Oh, def. Like Don Francisco's would be. Maybe great. I'll just come and I'll have like a backpack that kind of has this whole espresso thing That'd be happening, great. and I just kind of serve. That'd people. be great. Or beer, you know, one of the two. I'd be here. I mean, I was gonna say beer dehydrates you, but so does coffee. So I can't say that. <laughs> but you you have beer after doing like a marathon, so why not do it after a tour? That's I don't know. I need to figure something like rewarding. that out. Oh, Alex, man, I really appreciate you. Coming no, thank out, you man. for having me. Thank you fantastic. for your time. No, your thank attention. you for your time. Well, actually, what can I say? <laughs> I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to get the word out, and I'm more happy, most happy to welcome people to discover and learn about a place that, you know, really deserves that level of yeah. care and attention. And it just happens to be my home. And honestly, the history behind it alone is interesting enough to get people interested. Like yeah. Anything Come on that out. has that kind of, in, that kind of history is fantastic. Yeah. Maybe we just need to, maybe we need to develop a documentary on it to have Ooh. like a, speak my some language. Kind of yeah. You know what? We'll talk after the show. Sounds great to me. All right, guys. Thank you so much for watching. Till next time. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Oliver Stone Podcast. Safe journeys across the stars.